Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So, of all Sundays, we're preaching on Noah and the flood, right? God has a sense of humor. We're probably the only church in Florida that's doing Genesis 6 this morning. All righty. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand as we look at uh, Genesis chapter 6, some of 7, part of 8. Uh, the flood in Noah, it, it actually covers three full chapters, so we're just going to read some excerpts uh, from the account. This is God's Word. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and the creeping things and the birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. In chapter 7, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were in the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. This is the reading of God's Word. And Noah and the flood, every bit of it is true. It happened. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Amen. You may be seated. So 
So uh, when my daughter, Sarah, was in grad school at App State up in Boone, we went up to visit her one time, and she was living in a condo next to some neighborhoods. And so we were outside one morning, and we could hear this couple next door having a huge knockdown, dragout fight. And they are screaming at each other. I mean, we could hear every single word they were saying. And the husband at one point slammed the door, walked out to the driveway to get in his truck. And as he's leaving, you could hear his wife scream at the top of her lungs this, this desperate, this cry of pain. And she said, don't you judge me. Now, what was odd about her saying that was it didn't really fit the argument. It was kind of out of context. But it was her deepest cry. Don't judge me. You know, we're in Genesis 6 here. The judgment of God. The flood of judgment. And people today say, don't you judge me. I don't want to hear any of this judgment of God talk. People think it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's offensive. It's the reason some people don't like religion. Because they don't want to have judgment. They say, I can't believe in a God who judges. In fact, in our culture today, judging evil... Judging evil is considered far worse than actually doing evil. Judging someone is considered to be the worst thing you can possibly do in our culture today. British uh, novelist P.D. James said this through one of his characters. He said, I don't go for all this emphasis on sin and suffering and judgment. If I had a God, I'd prefer Him to be intelligent and cheerful and amusing. And then his Jewish colleague says back to him in the book, I doubt whether you would find this God to be of much comfort if they were pushing you into the gas chambers of the Holocaust. I think you might prefer a God of judgment then. My favorite... uh, Christmas hymn is Joy to the World. I love Christmas music, except when my family starts playing it in September. (laughs) But I love Joy to the World. Joy to the World comes from Psalm 98. And in that psalm, it, it, it says it invites all the people of Israel to worship the Lord. Then the audience gets bigger, and it says, invites all the people of the earth to worship the Lord with joy. And then it goes even further than that. It invites not just the people of the earth, but everything, everything, every living creature. It says, let the sea roar. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let all of creation sing and worship God as Savior. God is King. Make a joyful noise. Rejoice, because He is the judge who will judge the world in righteousness. Joy to the world. So in Genesis 6, God wipes out mankind with the flood. He destroys all the people, all the earth, everything except what's in the ark. 
So how is that joy to the world? We'll take your sermon outline. Let's look at this together. First, judgment, violence. Verse 7 says, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Verse 11 says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, for the earth was filled with violence. Now people, as I said, get very upset about this. They find it repulsive. Like this British writer who the character said, I I want a God who's intelligent and amusing and comfortable. You know, when I was in college, before I met my wife, I uh, went on a few dates with a, uh, a young lady named Robin. And we were going out, we had two or three dates, but then one night on our date, I still remember where we were, we kind of had this, well, we did have this theological discussion. And she said, I cannot believe in a God who sends people to hell. She could not abide with that. Well, our relationship ended. I guess you could say she judged me as not worthy of being with her. But our culture says, why does God destroy everyone because of the bad choices they make? Why does God seemingly punish so harshly? This is why a lot of people cannot abide with the Bible. They cannot embrace the God who is. Now, if you believe in a God of vengeance, of judgment, as I do, then it will indeed create problems for your heart and for your mind. Because it is hard. It is challenging. However, if you don't believe in a God of divine vengeance, then it will create even bigger problems, insurmountable problems. And the bigger problems will be created by human violence, which is what this passage says brings about God's judgment. If you don't believe in divine judgment, you will have huge problems with human violence. Three insurmountable problems. So three subpoints. If you don't believe it, First, you will have no intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence. You see, our culture today says there's no such thing as moral accountability. Sam Harris, who is an intellectual, said in his book, Free Will, he says this, When we see violence and crimes, our natural response is to demand justice. But he argues that those who commit violence, they had no real choice in the matter. Their actions were entirely determined by past experiences and neurological states that we cannot and should not hold them accountable. And so secular universities teach that there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's just a social construct. So we see animals in nature eating each other. And uh, science says, oh, that's just natural. But then you have big countries eating little countries, like Russia and Ukraine. And they also say, well, that's just normal. It's natural. You can't make a moral judgment. 
There is no moral law, they say, no moral judge, and so you can't say it's wrong. It's a cultural construct. But unless there is a judge outside of nature, how can you say anything is wrong? On what basis do you say it? Because nothing is crooked unless there is a straight edge somewhere. You must believe in the supernatural to complain about violence. You also cannot commend moral courage. You can't say something is courageous and morally good. You can't say what Rosa Parks did on that bus in 1955. You can't say it's courageous. So you can't have moral outrage and you can't have moral celebration with any intellectual integrity if there is no judge. Second subpoint: no emotional defense against the poisons of violence. So for every act of physical violence that we see in the world, there are millions more, million more acts of emotional violence where people's characters are assassinated. People are shamed and verbally abused. People are destroyed and wounded by verbal abuse and cruelty. It's in your family, it's in your workplace, it's in our culture, and, and, there's, and, this, and our earth is filled with this kind of violence, perhaps even more so. Now, when somebody wrongs you emotionally, I mean really hurts you, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to be angry, right? And your life can then be completely poisoned by it. You'll want to strike back by criticizing, condemning, or withholding love, or, or, or inwardly just pointing your finger at them and saying, Ugh! William Auden says this, I in the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. So that's why we have this culture today that we have, this culture of cancel. Well, you cancel people who are not like you, who don't think like you. You cancel people who don't believe like you do or who voted for someone else. And so, you, so we, we do violence on Twitter. We do violence on social media. We condemn, we criticize, we, we, we are vindictive, we hold grudges. It poisons us, it poisons others. Last week, Ray was preaching on Cain killing Abel. Violence, right? And as he was preaching, I realized I, I was convicted that I am still holding, I'm still nursing a grudge against someone who has been harming me for years. So what do I do with this? What do I do with this grudge? Well, people would say, well, Adam, you, you, uh, you just need to forgive them. But you can't forgive unless there's a judge. Unless there is one who will make it right in this life or in the life to come, or one to whom you can say, God will use this somehow in my life and in their life. We will do payback unless you believe there is a judge and that you are not the judge. That you have no right to judge. 
you don't have enough knowledge to know what this person deserves or does not deserve, and you don't have the power to judge. But there is one who does. Will you be able to forgive and limit your anger? Will you have a defense against the poison of bitterness and payback? Not unless you know there's a judge. And third, no cultural or social defense against taking up the sword. Mirsalov Vov is a Croatian and he's a Yale professor. He said this, he said, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. It requires it. He said, violence today, violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. So if your house is burned down by terrorists and your family is tortured or murdered, then you will take up the sword. You will be sucked into the endless cycle of violence in history unless you believe down deep that there is a judge. In fact, nothing else will break the cycle of human history, of the violence that we have seen, except for the truth that there is a judge who will come and make it all right one day. I mean, we're Americans, right? So we're comfortable. We don't really live under the threat that someone's going to come and destroy our home or our family. But think about all around the world, all through history, people take up the sword in violence. There's a young man who uh, spent most of his life in gangs in the inner city. And uh, he lost a lot of his family through gang violence. And after he was converted, he told his pastor, he said this, if God will not avenge, then I will have to. But because God says, vengeance is mine, he said, I am totally free to not take up the sword. I mean, think about this. Think about thousands and thousands of African Americans who are able to forgive the violence that has been done to them throughout history in our country. Think about it. They forgive. Many of them practice non-violence resistance. How do you do that decade after decade? Because you believe, because they believe in a God who will make it right. Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was a U.S. gymnastics team doctor who sexually abused over 250 young girls. And at his trial, Rachel, Rachel Den Hollander, she was the first woman to file charges against her, him for what he did to her as a young girl. And this is what she said at the trial, directly to him. Dr. Nasser, if you have read the Bible, you know that the definition of sacrificial love is portrayed in the life and death of Jesus. He gave up everything to pay the penalty for sins that he did not commit. And by his grace, I too choose to love this way. You have damaged 
hundreds. The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and His eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and mercy where it should not be found. And it can be there for you. How is she not going all violent on him? Verbally and physically threatening him. How is she not having to be restrained by by the guards in the courtroom? Because she believes there is a God who will make it right. Second, God's judgment, God's God's pain. So if you find it emotionally unbearable to think about God's judgment, if if you recoil at the idea of that, if, if in one sense it kind of hurts you, then you need to know there is nothing wrong with your heart. But you also need to know that it hurts God way, way more than you. There's just no comparison. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. Every, only, all. Nobody passes. So what would you expect the text to say next wouldn't you expect it to say that God got really angry and red in face and and steam was coming out his nostrils and he began to march like a giant towards the earth to destroy it with his wrath isn't that what you would think it would say it's not what it says the next verse says this It says, it grieved him to his heart. That God's heart was filled with pain. It was overwhelmed with pain. Now, it's it's actually staggering that this word here is used to describe God. Because what it means is unfulfilled longing. It means bitter anguish. It means deep anguish. It means deep frustration. It means that God has voluntarily bound His heart and His life with us. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. But He chose to. Once God made us, that He bound His heart to us, that His own joy is so deeply tied to ours, that He experiences pain, not just sadness, but pain, deep pain over losing us, seeing, our, seeing us as we take ourselves deeper and deeper into sin. Look at Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even if these may forget, I will not forget you. What he's saying is he's saying, look at, look at a woman, who, a mom who's nursing her child. 
and, and, and the child is feeding at her breast, and, and she is looking down at this child with, this, with all of her physical and emotional love pouring out to this child. And God says, that is nothing compared to how I feel about you. Look what Nicholas Waterstorff says. He says, the tears of God are the meaning of history. What? What does that mean? What is he saying? You see, in the garden, we rebelled against God. We turned our back on God. That's Genesis 3, 7. So the question is, why is there a verse 8? Why doesn't God just end it there? Why doesn't human history just stop right there? Because it should have stopped. Why didn't it? Because God decided to weep. God decided to suffer. His willingness to suffer is the reason there is human history down to this very moment. In verse 11, it says that God saw that the earth was corrupted with violence. This word corrupted is in there like four times. And what this word means is self-corrupted. So what God decided to judge and to cleanse was virtually already self-destroyed. The cancer of sin and violence was already destroying mankind. And so mankind is completely overtaken by this cancer of sin and violence. So bad, so much have they self-destroyed themselves that it's like a person who has cancer and there's so much cancer, you just call in hospice. There's, there's just nothing else that can be done. Sin is like that. Sin has a self-destructive power. And God is weeping. God is suffering grief over the cancer of violence that has overtaken what He loves. And so, He judges. He cleanses the earth with a flood. The tears of God are the meaning of history. I have a friend who is a Christian counselor. And um, years ago... A, he, a man uh, was seeing him for counseling. And this man was addicted to pornography. And he felt no remorse. He was not repentant. He, he didn't care. He could care less that he was object, objectifying women in this way. His wife was making him go to counseling. And he didn't care one bit that God would judge him for this at all. But that man sat in my office and told me how his life was changed one day in a counseling session. He said, my friend, the counselor, sat there with him and he began to weep. Weep over this man's sin and to weep over this man's hardness of heart. And he said, when he saw his counselor weeping for him, for his sin, it broke him. He realized how damaged he was, that he felt no emotion at all for what he was doing. 
He was changed. Let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever wept with you or for you? Has anyone ever looked at the broken things in your life and experienced grief? You know, it's, it's easy to avoid this perception of God that He's always angry and disappointed and put out with you. But what do you do with a God who weeps? A God who stands by the sickbed of your life, by your rebellion, by your sorrow, by your pain, by your loss, by your sin, and He experiences sorrow over you. That's the God of the Bible. Nicholas Waterstorff said this, he said, It is said of God that no one can behold His face and live. I've always thought this meant that no one could see His splendor and live. A friend said, Perhaps it meant that no one could see His sorrow and live. Or perhaps His sorrow is His splendor. So judgment and love go together. You cannot understand God's judgment without seeing His tears. And you cannot understand His tears unless you see how judgment and grace come together. So how do they come together? The flood. The answer is in the flood. So third, judgment, grace. How do grace and judgment come together? In chapter 7, it says that the waters increase. The waters rose higher and higher and higher, and they bore up the ark, and the ark rose above the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. So the flood itself brings together judgment and grace. It is salvation through judgment. So Noah, he trusts God, he listens to God, and he does what he's told. He builds an ark, and no one else will listen. They won't go into the ark. They don't care what's going to happen. And the waters come, and the same waters that sink them and judge them also lift up Noah and his family. The same waters that sink everyone outside the ark saves everyone inside the ark. The water lifts them up and carries them away from death and destruction because they're hidden in the ark. And it establishes this pattern where the two are woven together. It's, it's a pattern of, of not grace in spite of judgment, but grace through judgment. But here's the question. Does it solve the problem of violence and God's sorrow? In other words, how effective was the flood in accomplishing this? Not really very effective. But let's work it out by answering this question. All right, you ready, class? All right. Think about your Bible knowledge. What went into the ark? Come on, it's easy. Animals. 
Good, good. What else went into the ark? People, Noah and his family. What else went into the ark? Sin. Sin went into the ark. This was not save the good people and eliminate the bad people. Because sin went into the ark. Sin was in Noah. Sin was in his family. In fact, right after this, Noah's sin destroys and screws up most of his family. In 1920s, 1920s, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he is experiencing the brunt of human violence because he is opposing with others the Russian government for their violence and he is thrown into prison and he is in prison lying there on rotting straw. And these are the words that came to his mind. He says, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That sin and violence are not out there, they're in here. It's in Noah, it's in us. And so the judgment of the flood was not effective to resolve that. Or God's sorrow. But it was very effective to point us and to turn our attention towards something else. And Jesus tells us what that something else was, what the flood pointed to. In Matthew 24, he says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. So during the days of Noah, Jesus is saying, before the flood came, people were just doing life. You know, they were going to the grocery store. They're taking their kids to T-ball. They were visiting with their neighbors. And though they were warned about the coming judgment of the flood, they just ignored it. They were busy. They didn't have time for that. They didn't want to be bothered. Jesus says it will be the same way in the final judgment when it comes. In fact, in Revelations it says that there will be a time when people will literally cry out to the mountains this, fall on us. Hide us from the face of who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come. Who can stand? So let me just ask you, because I don't know you, all of you. Are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? Or you just don't have time for it? Will the waters crush you? Or will you experience grace through judgment and the waters will lift you up? Let's go back and resolve something else. Let's go back to God's pain. So Jesus is in the garden. 
before his death. And he is in total agony, total pain. And he says to the Father, Father, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus is in sheer agony. He is in tears of anguish. He is begging his Father for any other way. It's so bad that God the Father sends an angel to strengthen Jesus. And it doesn't help. He is sweating drops of blood. So why is Jesus so afraid? I mean, come on, really? People face death all the time. Lots of people face death with courage. I mean, think about firefighters and policemen going into dangerous situations, facing death with courage. What's up with Jesus? He's the Son of God, for crying out loud, and, he, and He's folding under the pressure as He faces death. He just doesn't seem very tough. Why is He so afraid? The image of the cup of the Lord cuts through the Hebrew Scriptures like a jagged force of a lightning bolt. Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, all of them use this metaphor of a cup, the cup of God's judgment. And so Jesus is not just facing death, he's facing drinking down the cup of God's judgment, the judgment against all sin and violence on an epic scale. God's anger over the Holocaust, God's anger over slave trade and sex trafficking, over the abuse of children, over, over mass shootings, over murder in families. That's what he's afraid of. That's his utter dread. It's not the nails. How did Jesus die? He drowned. He drowned. Crucifixion kills a person by suffocation, drowning them under the weight of their fatigued body, causing them to gasp for air until they can no more. But more significantly, Jesus drowned under the flood of God's wrath as he was judging all the evil and violence throughout history. And so grace and judgment come together. Grace through judgment. And the same judgment that sank Jesus can lift you up if you are in Christ. For in Christ there is no condemnation. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.